you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open up to John chapter 19. That's the Gospel of John chapter 19. Last week we were in John chapter 18. This week 19 and then next week we'll be in John chapter 20. If you have a Bible, I would invite you to read along. If not, it should be on the screen for you as well uh, to read the scripture. This is John chapter 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the thorn of crowns, the crown of thorns, and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourself and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, Will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of the preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king! They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. 
But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to its mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished! And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. This is the word of the Lord. God, this morning as we open your word, we are aware, Lord, that you tell us that what we read here, what we see here, is of utmost importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. God, as we hear your word and as we witness what it took for you to rescue us, what it took for you to draw us back into relationship with you, what it took for you to reconcile sinners to yourself, Lord, would we respond with faith? Would we respond with amazement? Would you lead our hearts to respond in ways that are appropriate to the beauty and the grandeur and the majesty of what we hear today. God, we are so thankful for Jesus and are asking you this morning to draw us away from ourselves, to renounce ourselves, Lord, and to place our faith firmly upon your Son, Jesus Christ. Lead us through your word now. In Jesus' name, we pray and worship. Amen. Do this 
and live. Or live and do this. Do this and live. Or live and do this. One expresses Christianity. The other expresses every other religion and philosophy of the world. I wonder which one describes your life more closely. Do this and live, or live and do this. Every other religion, every other philosophy of the world is some variation, some formation of do this and live. It's about you changing yourself. It's about you making better decisions. It's about you prioritizing your life in a better way. It's about you becoming more kind, you becoming more loving, you becoming more patient, you becoming more something. Do this. And then you'll live. I read an article this week about the fear of public speaking. I would bet in a room this size there's some fear of public speaking in the room. The article opens up this way. Academic researchers hypothesize that this intense fear of public speaking comes from evolution. In the past, when humans were threatened by large predators, living as a group was a basic survival skill, and ostracism or separation of any kind would certainly mean death. This may have evolved into the fear of public speaking. And it makes sense. What situation embodies that kind of separation more than standing all alone in front of a room full of people? On a deep level, people are afraid their audience will reject them. Now, there is one sentence from this little paragraph that is true, and it is the last sentence. People are afraid that their audience will reject them. Uh, I'm not sure how they got from the fear of being eaten by predators, to the fear of being afraid of a large room of people, uh, rejecting them. But this is what I am sure of. You and I were made to live in the loving acceptance of God. And so that means that rejection and failure feel like death to us. We were made, we were created to live in acceptance with God. And so for a lot of us, it makes life feel like a performance. Here's the formula which bears down on our lives. Achieve, accomplish, arrive, succeed, perform, and then when you've done that, you'll experience the life that you've always wanted. But here's the problem with do this and live. No one has ever been able to do enough. No one has ever been able to measure up. No, 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 no. What you and I need, what you and I need more than anything, is for someone else to perform for us. We need someone else to achieve for us. We need someone else to succeed for us. And that is the good news of Jesus Christ. That my friends, is why this church exists. Because 2,000 years ago, hanging from a bloody cross, Jesus preached his own sermon from the cross. And his sermon from his cross was, it is finished. And that was the death 
of do this and live. Now, whatever we do is not done to earn life, is not done to achieve life, but rather is done because Jesus has freely given us life. So today from John chapter 19, we're going to be looking at five things that the cross reveals. Five things that the cross reveals. And the first is this. The first is that the cross reveals God's authority. The cross reveals God's authority. As chapter 19, as John chapter 19 opens up, what we witness is lots of external power being exerted upon Jesus. Jesus is flogged by Pilate, who is the governor. Jesus is mocked and struck by soldiers, and Jesus is falsely accused by the Jews. Each of these groups exerts power over Jesus by demonstrating authority over him, authority over his body, authority over his identity, and authority over his future. They're pressing down on Jesus. And what drew out Pilate's statement in verse 10 where he says, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? What drew that statement out of Pilate was that it was so odd that Jesus wasn't responding like every other person had responded under trial. I mean, how many thousands of people had stood there in front of Pilate and been questioned by him? And how many thousands of people had tried to push themselves up, tried to defend themselves, Try to explain their innocence. But here Jesus is acting like no one has ever acted before. Pilate thinks that Jesus doesn't understand the situation. And so he's trying to clarify it for Jesus. But in reality, Pilate was the one who did not understand the situation. And that's why in verse 11, Jesus said to Pilate, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Jesus wasn't fighting against what appeared to be the human authority because Jesus understands the reality of the universe better than anyone. Jesus understands that there is no one who truly has authority except for God himself. So how does the cross reveal God's authority? Well, it reveals God's authority from two angles. The one angle is that we see how Jesus lived his whole life under the authority of God alone. Jesus was able to see through human authority and live his life in the world where God was God and God was governing. Jesus was teaching us as he was headed to the cross that there's actually only one person that you and I must answer to, and that is God himself. But we also see the authority of God revealed from another angle. And it was that, it's this, that those who thought they were freely exercising authority would actually one day have to give an account to God. And that's why at the end of verse 11, Jesus adds this phrase, Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Every single one of us in this room will have to appear before the judgment seat of God. Every one of us here will have to give an account of our life to God. And Psalm 14, one 
tells us this. It says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool says in his heart, I don't, I don't have to live my life worried about God. I don't have to think about Him. I don't have to submit to His authority. I worked in a big shopping store for a few months toward the end of college. And I got to know the security guard there, uh, and he kind of let me know a little bit behind the scenes of, his, of how he operated. Uh, he, you know, he told me that most people who would steal from the store would steal more than once, but that he and his team wouldn't always necessarily run after the person the first time they stole something. That over a few weeks or a few months, that person would come in and steal, and they would slowly be building a case against that person, slowly making sure they got all the right camera angles so that the person would actually have to pay for what they were doing. Now, the person who was doing the shoplifting, they were thinking, man, I'm just really good at this. They were thinking, man, I just must be like really, really sneaky. But all the while, being watched, all the while, a day of reckoning was coming. See, and you and I, I, we live our lives away thinking, I'll never have to give an account. I'll never have to answer for this. But what we're learning from John 19 is that every single one of us will stand before God. And here's the deal. God sees the heart. So we must answer to his authority. The second thing we see is that the cross reveals sin's depravity. So the cross reveals God's authority, but it also reveals sin's depravity. As, as, as we witness this mob trial take place in John chapter 19, the sufferings of Jesus just rise higher and higher and higher. First, we see that Jesus was flogged by Pilate. What that means, if you kind of put all the different gospel accounts together, you see that Jesus was whipped to the point where he was unrecognizable. And then it tells us in verse 2 that the soldiers made a crown of thorns. I'm not sure when the last time you got pricked on a finger or an arm was, but just imagine a full head, full head of thorns. And obviously the pain was one thing, but it was the, the mockery of it that was the other side. Hail, King of the Jews. Jesus was both innocent Pilate multiple times says, I find no guilt in him. And Jesus was, in fact, the Son of God, the very thing that the Jews falsely accused him of. And yet he was, within a matter of hours, unjustly tried and executed by the state. I mean, just imagine a world where in a few few hours, someone can go from being a free man to being executed by the state. And then... Verses 17 and 18 tell us he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the, the, skull, place, the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Crucifixion was the most horrific form of execution. They would drive spikes through your most sensitive nerve centers And then for hours, you would have to shift your weight back and forth between your feet and between your arms. Your arms would start to hurt so bad that you would then have to put all your weight onto your feet 
But then after, after a time, your feet would start to hurt so bad that you'd have to transfer to your arms. And back and forth, the victim would go until eventually they would suffocate to death. Crucifixion was the most horrific form of execution. And as terrible as the physical pain of crucifixion was, we also learned that especially for Jesus, there was an unusual amount of embarrassment. We learn in verse 23 that Jesus was stripped naked and nailed to the cross. So his whole body was exposed publicly for hours. Jesus' own mother looked up at his naked body as he hung there on the cross. Jesus' friends looked up at his naked body as he hung there on the cross. And just random people passing by in and out of the city looked up at Jesus fully exposed wrapped in shame, and above his head the sign, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And then Jesus bowed his head, he gave up his spirit, and the King of history, the Lord of life, was put into the ground. He entered all the way down into the death that you and I will die. So here's the question we have to ask. Why couldn't Jesus have just died in a back room somewhere? Why couldn't Jesus have just died in his sleep? Why the shame, the agony, the torment, the injustice? And the answer we get as we look throughout the Scriptures that the severity of his suffering had to match the severity of our sin. That we see our depravity when we look at Jesus on the cross. That because sin is foolish, Jesus was made to be a fool. That because sin harms other people, Jesus was harmed by other people. Because sin is lawless, Jesus was condemned as a lawbreaker. Because sin makes us guilty, Jesus was punished with the death penalty. And worst of all, because sin casts us away from God. For those few brief moments, Jesus lost all sense of God's love and presence. The severity of his suffering had to match the severity of our sin. And that's why the cross reveals sin's depravity. So the cross reveals God's authority, and then it shows us the travesty of what it means that all of us have gone against God's authority. And then third, the cross reveals Scripture's certainty. The cross reveals Scripture's certainty. Now, there's three scenes in John 19 that point us to the certainty of Scripture. The first is in verses 23 and 24. It says this, When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. And so they said to one another, Let us not tear it. 
but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So, hundreds of years earlier, it was predicted that when the Messiah would come and die, that his clothing would be dispersed between the soldiers, and that they would cast lots for his garment, and that that is exactly what happened. And then the second scene is in verse 28 and 29. It says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to its mouth. So Jesus was fully aware, while, while no one else was aware, Jesus was fully aware that everything that was happening to him and everything he was doing had been predicted hundreds of years earlier and now was being played out on the scene of history. And then the third scene comes in verses 31 to 37 where it says this, Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would remain on the cross on the Sabbath, would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. So here's the crazy thing about this. Jesus obviously knew that he was fulfilling the scripture, but the soldiers and the Jews did not know what they were doing was fulfilling the scriptures. The soldiers who divided his garments, the Jews who went to Pilate about having the legs broken. And here's the crazy thing. The guy on the left and on the right of Jesus both had their legs broken, but Jesus did not. And the guy on the left and on the right of Jesus were not pierced, but Jesus was, all because it had been predicted by God in the Scriptures. The cross reveals the certainty of Scripture. I had this little booklet called Question and Answer for Your Life. And it, this little booklet just takes eight of the predictions about Jesus, sort of like these four here. And it lines them up, and it, it does a little math equation. It says that the probability that all eight of these predictions would come to fruition in the life of one person is, some of you math people will understand this, one times ten to the 17th power. So for a few people in the room who understand math, that just made sense to you, and you realize that for all eight of those things to come true in one person was a really, really big deal. For the rest of us who have no idea what one times ten to the 17th power means, they continue to put this into perspective it would be the same as marking a silver dollar, mixing it in a pile of silver dollars, covering the entire state of Texas two feet deep, and then having a blind man pick out the marked coin. You will not find anything more reliable than the Bible. And one of the main reasons we know that we can trust the scriptures is because there were many, many, many things prophesied about what would happen in the life and in the death of Jesus and every single one of them came true. And so what does this mean? Why does it matter? Well, obviously it matters because if we're going to believe in Jesus, 
then we actually have to believe that this happened and that it took place the way that it's being described that it took place. But here's maybe a deeper reason. That when you and I put our faith in Jesus, we must put our faith in the Jesus of the Scriptures, not in the Jesus of our own imagination. That we believe in who God is according to the Scriptures. We believe what a human being is according to the Scriptures. And we believe that Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Not according to our own imagination or intuition. But Here's another reason I think that John takes the time to go into the detail and show us how these Scriptures are being fulfilled. I think it's that by doing this, it actually displays God's heart to us. See, the very existence of the Bible is proof that God gives us better than we deserve. The very existence of the Scriptures is proof that God is pursuing sinners. The Bible cannot be just another self-help plan. Because the Bible itself is what tells us that you and I have failed miserably. The Bible's message cannot be, do this and live, because it's the same infallible Bible that tells us that there is nothing that we could do to inherit eternal life. This Bible must be an announcement of good news for sinners that God saves. That must be the reason we have a Bible. No amount of new instruction would fix the problem. And that leads to our fourth thing this morning. The cross reveals Christ's sufficiency. The cross reveals Christ's sufficiency. Maybe you've lingered around Christianity for a little bit and, and you've seen the cross. You've seen that image. But if someone were to come up to you and ask you, what does the cross actually mean? Maybe you would have a hard time answering that question. Well, thankfully, Jesus preached his own sermon from the cross. And hanging there, he cried out in verse 30, It is finished! He did not leave us to wonder what was happening. And so that declaration of it is finished, it means two things that are both equally important and equally magnificent. The first thing it means is that Jesus lived a perfectly obedient life. He got all the way to the finish line with no sin, no spot, no stain, no wrinkle. Jesus lived a perfect life. Uh, in baseball, when one pitcher pitches all nine innings, the entirety of the nine innings, they call that a complete game. Uh, when the same said pitcher doesn't give up any hits, but only allows someone to get on base by either an error or a walk, they call that a no-hitter. But here's the crazy thing. You can actually lose a complete game, and you can even lose a no-hitter. In 1963... 1964, excuse me, on April 23rd, 1964, Ken Johnson of the Houston Colt 45, some of y'all remember who that is, 
became the only pitcher to lose a complete game no-hitter in nine innings when he was beaten one to nothing by the Cincinnati Reds. But you know what they call it? When the same pitcher goes all nine innings and no one ever reaches base at all, they call that a perfect game. And here's the secret. You can't lose a perfect game. Jesus made it all the way to the finish line. Perfect righteousness. Guys, if you want to see what this looks like, see how Jesus... Going through what he, I mean, talk about having a bad day. Going through what he is going through, and he is still caring for the people that are being left, his mom and his friend John. I mean, this is the perfect man. And we say that Jesus is our Savior. What we mean is that he fulfilled the righteousness that you and I could not. He did what God called human beings to do that you and I failed to do. Jesus achieved the glory that Romans 3.23 says we have all fallen short of. And that is one massively important thing that it means when Jesus says it is finished. But equally important and magnificent, when Jesus said it is finished, he also meant that all of the condemnation, all of the guilt, all of the punishment, all of the wrath that you and I deserve as sinners had been absorbed in him through his sufferings. Jesus wasn't primarily dying as a martyr. Jesus wasn't primarily dying as an example Jesus wasn't even primarily dying to show us that God loves us. Jesus was primarily dying to be a sacrificial substitute. It was our condemnation that came down upon him. It was the punishment that we deserved that fell upon his head. It was the shame and embarrassment for our sin that had made him the embarrassment of the ages. When Jesus said, it is finished... He meant that all of the wrath of God was now absorbed for anyone who would put their faith in Jesus. In Greek mythology, there's a story about a man named Sisyphus. Uh, Sisyphus was punished for all of eternity to roll a rock up a mountain, only to have that rock fall back down to the mountain every time he got near the top. And he had to do it time and time again for for all of eternity. I mean, imagine that your life was like getting to the end of a Monday and then at the end of the Monday having to just go back and relive Monday over and over and over again. Or imagine that you had worked your whole career and you got right to the age of retirement and then as soon as you got close, somebody just pressed a button and it just reset you back to the beginning. And for all of eternity, that was your existence. Guys, that is the tyranny of do this and live. That is the tyranny of you and I thinking that maybe the way life works is God and 
success and my significance, they're somewhere up there at the top of the hill, and I just have to keep pushing this boulder up the hill, and maybe if I get to the top up there, I'll find life. And then the boulder just rolls back down again. And at some point you realize that for all my trying, for all my effort, for all my doing, I could never do enough. And so then the Christian gospel just comes in and explodes into history. It explodes down into our weary, tired, broken hearts. And we hear Jesus say, it is finished. Which is him saying, I did your work for you. I have achieved, succeeded. I have paid, I have performed in your place. And so it must be the end of do this and live. Jesus is enough. We have peace with God and eternal life completely and solely because Jesus lived the perfect life that we should have and he died the substitutionary death that we all deserved. So here's a few things that this means for us. Here's two major things that this means for us in this room. One is that we can stop performing and the other is that we can stop paying. See, some of us live in this performance mindset. Uh, we, we, we somehow think that our whole life has lived on a stage and that God and everyone else walk around with their clipboard and they're constantly assessing our performance. And we think that what we have to do is to live a good life and to be a holy person so that God and everyone else will approve of us. But when Jesus said, it is finished, he was saying, the show's over. The curtains have closed. I have completed everything necessary all the way to its perfect completion. It is finished means it's time to close the curtains on our life of performance. But some of us have this payment mindset or we just think to ourselves, for all the bad things that I've done, I just, I just must have to continually pay God back for the ways I've messed up. And if you live in this payment mindset, you, you, you probably even look at the cross. You even probably look at Jesus there hanging, dying for you and think, well, there's just one more thing I have to pay God back for. And so you're plagued with more and more and more and self-loathing and self-pity and beating yourself up for your sin because you think it's on your shoulders to pay. But when Jesus said, it is finished, he was telling us, rip up the bills. My infinite blood covers all your debt. You're free. No more payment needed. And so it is finished. The good news of it is finished puts to death both our performance and our payment mindsets. But then we move, fifth and finally, to where John is really moving all of us. Um, he's been pouring this on, and, and really he's been, if, if we had read through this whole book, we would see this is his, this is his highest aim. Fifth and finally, the cross reveals faith's necessity. The cross reveals faith's necessity. I don't know if you've ever looked at a piece of art and kind of wondered what it meant. I uh, took an art history class at Coastal Carolina, and uh, 
You'd be amazed by what people think they can get out of a sculpture or a picture or something like that. Think like, oh, I'm not quite sure that's what the author had in mind there. I'm so thankful that you and I are not left with having to create our own interpretation of the cross. We're not left with having to figure out what the right response is. John is coming to us this morning on behalf of God himself, and he is giving us what is the only reasonable response to the cross of Jesus Christ. Verse 35 says, He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth that you also may believe. What John is doing, the reason he's writing, the reason God was speaking through him this event to us is that every single one of us would come to believe in Jesus. If you're here today and you don't know and trust Jesus, I just want to sincerely ask you, what are you waiting for? Do you still need to be convinced that you're a sinner? Do you still need to be convinced that God pursues and loves sinners? Do you still need to be convinced that what Jesus has done is enough? What is there left? I plead with you, if you have not put your trust in Jesus, renounce following your own way. Renounce being in charge of your own life and look to Jesus today. See, biblical faith is something that isn't just for people who need to put their faith in Jesus for the first time. Uh, John Murray has a great definition of faith that I love. John Murray says, Biblical faith is knowledge passing into conviction. In other words, it's looking at this event and saying, Oh, like, yeah, I think that happened. I believe that's true. I believe that that's something that happened in history. That is to be to have a conviction about something. But then he goes on to say that biblical faith is then conviction, conviction passing into confidence. And that's why it doesn't matter this morning if you need to put your faith in Jesus for the first time or if you need to put your faith in Jesus for the thousandth time. You need to hear that what Jesus has done is enough. Because it's not just about looking at it and saying, I think it's true. It's about more and more and more finding ourselves resting and trusting and having confidence in Jesus himself. If we were to stand before God one day and he were to ask, what have you done to deserve life? We must answer, I've done nothing to deserve life. And if he were to ask, well, what performance do you bring? We must answer, I bring no performance. And if God were to look at you and say, well, what payment do you bring for all the wrong things that you've done? We must say, I bring no payment. And if God were to say, well, then why should I give you life? The only appropriate response would be, Jesus is my performance, and Jesus is my payment, 
and I trust Him completely. This is Christianity, guys. This is it. It is Jesus or die. It is totally Him and live. Or it is keep trusting myself and totally miss out. This is the heart of what we're doing here. And so here's the deal. Uh, Nobody needs more to learn to walk by faith in moment-to-moment confidence than I do. Nobody here needs to move from a philosophy of do this and live to live and do this than I do. And so as I've been processing this week, I just started to begin to think through different aspects of my life. And, 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 I, and I really thought to myself, if this is true, that it is finished, if what Jesus preached from the cross is true, what would it mean for my everyday life? And these are a few thoughts that I came up with. The first is this, what does it is finished mean for our conscience? It is finished means that you and I no longer have to walk under a cloud of guilt. In fact, if you and I continue to beat ourselves up for our sin, we're actually doing dishonor to Christ. So as one of our church members said to me this week, when we're going through life and feeling lost and struggling with our sin and don't know what to do, we can look to Jesus and say to ourselves, it is finished. It's the only thing that cleanses the conscience. What does it is finished mean for our schedules? It is finished means that we actually don't have to cram our lives full of stuff for ourselves and for our kids to achieve significance and purpose in life. That it is finished actually might mean that you and I are free to say no because we don't constantly feel like we have to get to the next rung and next ladder to experience life. Man, do we need to hear that. It is okay to not be busy. It is finished. What does it is finished mean for our relationships? Well, it means both that because my record is now Christ's record, my identity is not defined by how anyone in my life thinks about me. But it's also true that as I embrace the record of Jesus for me, I now no longer judge anyone else on the basis of their record. I can say, it is finished for me and for you. And begin to treat you no longer as your record deserves, but rather as you would be in Christ. I think that would change our relationships. What does it is finished mean for our prayers? It is finished means that we no longer have to wonder whether or not God wants to hear from us or not. And we no longer have to whether, whether wonder whether God does hear us or not. We come in to the presence of God clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. We can run into his presence with the confidence of a child because we are just as safe and secure in his hands now as we will be in heaven one day. 
What does it is finished mean for ministry? I know lots of you serve and do ministry in different capacities. It is finished means that ministry is not a performance. Ministry is not payment. And ministry does not put us in the place of Savior in anyone else's life. It is finished means we are free to love and serve and then trust Jesus with the results. What does it is finished mean for justice? It is finished means that we can know for sure that there will not be one sin that does not go unpunished. All sin will either be fully exhausted upon Jesus or it will be dealt with at the final judgment. That if you have been sinned against, it is not your responsibility and you can't even take on the responsibility of holding everyone in your life accountable for the ways that they've hurt you. But know this, God will make it right in the end. What does it is finished mean for our devotional life? It is finished means that Bible reading, attending church, prayer, fasting, meeting with other Christians, those things are never sacrifices to appease God after we've messed up. Bible reading, prayer, coming to church, fasting, Walking with other believers is always the outworking of a loving relationship with our Heavenly Father. Devotion is not performance and payment. Devotion is relationship and gratitude. What does it is finished mean for our failures and disappointments? It is finished means that God is not frowning at us. God is not grumbling at our incompetence. Here's a little secret. The only person who's actually not a big old failure is Jesus. So we can start taking ourselves a whole lot less seriously and start taking Jesus a whole lot more seriously. It is finished means it's time to start laughing at ourselves. Whoever thought that we could do this and earn eternal life needs to laugh. And I'm the foremost. What does it is finished mean for our suffering? Well, it means that God cannot and he will not punish you after he has already punished Jesus for your sin on the cross. So that whatever suffering you're going through is not an indication of how God feels about you. Whatever suffering you're going through is driving you deeper into your Savior Jesus, who's done everything necessary for you. And whatever feels uncomfortable and out of place and unwelcome in your life is simply storing up your inheritance that Christ has purchased for you. And 
what does it is finished mean for our church? It is finished means that when we look around this place, there is not one person in this room who deserves to be here more than another person in this room. There's not one person in this room has, who has more of a right to be here than another person in this room. There's not one person in this room who got into God's family because of their personality, because of their nationality, because of their morality, or because of their generosity. We are all receiving from God infinitely better than we deserve. And so now it's time for us to start treating others with that same kind of grace and mercy. What does it is finished mean? It is finished means that today, we all just need to take a deep breath of rest and gratitude for what God has done for us in our lives. And it is finished also means that next Sunday, it is time to party. Satan is bound. Our future is secure, and death is defeated. It is finished. Let's pray. Lord, we, again, know, we know, Lord, that what we've been looking at this morning are the things that you tell us are the most important things. And so, God, I pray that you would draw out from us the kind of faith and worship that, a, that accompany the most important things. Lord, that we would all leave here today more trusting Jesus than we walked through the door. That the proclamation of good news, that it is finished, would reign in our hearts. Lord, we need you. I ask you to draw us to renounce ourselves to put all trust in Christ. It's in his name that we worship now. Amen.